welcome to Soccer Morning on World Soccer Talk. Here's your host, Jason Davis. Here we go, Soccer Morning on a Thursday. Welcome into World Soccer Talk. Thank you very much for joining us today. Today may be the day I curse on the air. We'll see what happens with that. Uh, There may be some distractions happening in the general area around me. We may have some technical things happening here behind the scenes at Soccer Morning, but that doesn't mean we won't bring you a solid, solid program here today. Very excited for today's show. Two excellent guests, Tom Marshall, our friend from ESPN FC, who covers the Mexican national team, will join us in a couple of minutes. We'll go over that insane 4-4 draw with Trinidad and Tobago that happened last night in Charlotte and then... A little bit later on in the show, Seth Fertelny from Goal.com will join us because he was in attendance at the FIFA, at the, uh, the FIFA hearing, the Senate subcommittee hearing on FIFA corruption in which Dan Flynn some, said some interesting things. Andrew Jennings was present. It was a fascinating day, uh, on, on the Hill in Washington when it related to, as it related to soccer governance, both in the United States and beyond. Let's do the headlines. Ahead of Tom Marshall, because we are running late. That's the technical difficulties that I spoke about earlier. Here we go. Mexico, Trinidad and Tobago, 4-4. Crazy draw in Charlotte, North Carolina last night. At at various points, Mexico was up 2-0. Then they were up 4-3 with just minutes to go. Not even, uh, we may have been in stoppage time. I have to go back and look at the box score of that thing. I watched it in real time, and it it was such an insane match that you kind of, Lost track of when things were happening. Yeah, both both the fourth goals for each side came after full time, after 90 minutes. So we were into added uh, injury time when Mexico scored their fourth. And then on a set piece on the other end, Trinidad and Tobago gets a goal from Johannes Marshall uh, that uh, tied it up again, gave Trinidad and Tobago the group win in Group C. Now they move on to the quarterfinals, and obviously, uh, obviously the Mexicans move on to the quarterfinals as well. But here's the rub: they've got to face Costa Rica now in New Jersey on uh, Sunday, rather than having uh, rather than having a, a slightly easier path by facing Panama that same day. So your quarterfinals for the 2015 Gold Cup are set. Uh, the USA will face Cuba in the quarterfinals. After Cuba beat Guatemala 1-0. This is a surprise only because, hey, remember, Cuba got throttled by Mexico 6-0. Cuba had to deal with defections, visa problems. Four players so far defected from Cuba. And here they are in the quarterfinals. They'll face the United States on Saturday in Baltimore. Your other quarterfinals, Haiti and Jamaica. And I've already mentioned uh, those other two on the other side of the bracket. All right. Here is, uh, some, uh, the, here are some, some results of that FIFA hearing. I'm not sure any results, actually. The Senate FIFA hearing involved Dan Flynn, CEO, Secretary General of U.S. Soccer, and, and I mentioned it on the show, Sunil Gulati did not attend. Uh, he was directly called out for not attending by D- uh, Andrew Jennings, by uh, some of the Senate subcommittee members. Flynn says he had no direct knowledge of CONCACAF corruption and that he felt uncomfortable or something to that effect. There's a piece up at uh, New York Times, the New York Times by uh, Rebecca Ruiz that outlines exactly what happened. What did U.S. soccer know? Asked Senator Jerry Moran, Republican uh, from Kansas, chairman of the Subcommittee on Consumer Protection. What should you have known? Obviously, Dan Flynn said, I knew nothing about any corruption. 
He later said he had experienced a, quote, level of discomfort, unquote, with the way FIFA did business, but had not had, quote, cold facts, unquote, on which to act. Yeah, okay, sure, uh, U.S. soccer stood oddly by while things were happening because it benefited them, especially. Number four here today, Columbus beating Chicago at, at Toyota Park, one nothing. Kai Kamara with his lead-leading 13th goal. Ethan Finley with his lead-leading 11th uh, assist for Columbus as they get on the right side of things against the Chicago side that is just abysmal right now. Uh, Chicago, uh, they did, they didn't have a win against Seattle on Saturday, but of course we know how, uh, how banged up and, um, um, shorthanded Seattle was in that game. Uh, meanwhile, Columbus, this is their third win in five and, or sorry, yeah, third win in five, uh, after they had a loss to Montreal. Um, last week up in Canada. Number five, so here we go. Real Madrid topping the list. Apologize for the distraction, guys. Real Madrid topping the list of Forbes' most valuable sports teams. Uh, $3.26 billion Real Madrid is valued by Forbes. Dallas Cowboys and Yankees, New York Yankees coming in, um, just behind at $3.2 billion. Manchester City, is 29th overall at 1.39. Chelsea, 1.37, sit 31st. And Arsenal is 36th at 1.31. So there you go. Uh, your values that of, of sports teams, because that matters a whole lot to you. Speaking of value, Christian Benteke of Aston Villa will join Liverpool, it looks like, for 32.5 million pounds. That's a, um, upgraded striker for Liverpool. Certainly, uh, will help them. He's, he's a, He's a very good player. He's not quite the full finished product yet, but he's a very good player, and he will help Liverpool. All right, let's take a break. When we come back, we'll grab Tom Marshall, Mexico World Cup. We'll talk to him about what happened last night and what the Mexicans can expect from Costa Rica in the quarterfinals. Don't go anywhere. Soccer Morning, WorldSoccerTalk.com. Facing the crowd. You're talking too loud. This Saturday, the U.S. men's national team will play in the quarterfinals of the Gold Cup and will be two steps away from reaching the final for the sixth consecutive tournament. Soccer Morning listeners, I'd like to invite you to join me as I'll be sharing my thoughts and opinions during the game live on Rabble.tv. With Rabble.tv, the concept is simple. All you have to do is tune into the broadcast on TV, press the mute button, and then head on over to Rabble.tv to listen to me sharing my analysis. With Rabble, you can listen to my broadcast on your desktop, through your iOS app, and now through your mobile browser. You can join in, too, by posting your questions or observations in the comments section. Will Jurgen Klinsmann be able to get this U.S. team firing in all cylinders again? Find out this Saturday, July 18th at 5 p.m. Eastern, and cheer on the red, white, and blue with me, live on Rabble.tv. Welcome back to Soccer Morning on World Soccer Talk with Jason Davis. Here we go back on Soccer Morning on a Thursday. Happy to be joined now by our friend Tom Marshall. You can follow him on Twitter at Mexico World Cup. Uh, right now, the Mexicans don't look much like their World Cup selves. Last night in Charlotte, final group stage match with the win with the uh, top spot in the group on the line. They draw with Trinidad and Tobago. 4-4 in one of the most insane, possibly the greatest Gold, Gold Cup game of all time, Tom. 
Possibly. <laughs> it was a good game, yeah. It was definitely uh, uh, exciting, but he wasn't good when you were writing about it because <laughs> you honestly didn't know he was going to win. It changed about three times in the second half. But, uh, yeah, no, a top game. Um, obviously, I thought Kenwin Jones was perhaps that was the individual performance of the tournament so far. I mean, I thought it was unbelievable. Uh, a bit unlucky with the own goal. But, um, yeah, from the Mexican point of view, I mean, a draw, that's... Uh, Pretty bad result, to be honest. Um, obviously, second in the group. Nobody expected that. Everyone thought Mexico could walk through Group C with Trinidad, Guatemala and Cuba. So, big questions uh, surrounding the Mexican team. And, um, yeah, I mean, playing at home, um, basically at home, you know, in front of passionate Mexico fans and can only draw against Trinidad and can only manage a draw against Guatemala. So, you know, the, the knives are definitely being sharpened uh, amongst the Mexican uh, press contingent. Uh, now, so we had some, we're still dealing with some technical issues for the live stream. So apologies there. Tom may have gotten cut off a little bit. We're back. Um, so, you know, we sort of outlined that it's not a good result for Mexico and uh, that it's pretty obvious, especially considering they were in a winning position. They were up two nothing, Tom, and it looked like they were going to coast. It looked like that game was going, was going to be theirs. They certainly were dominating the ball as you would expect them to. Um, they were creating chances. There was, plenty of opportunity to extend that lead and ultimately they just uh, I, I don't know I mean Trinidad and Tobago was clinical they were clinical yeah but I thought Mexico gave the ball away and Miguel Herrera said after the game you know Mexico gave the ball away far too easily and and uh, you know lacked a bit of kind of now so kind of like football intelligence and intelligence of controlling the game and you know instead of piling forward kind of you know, controlling the ball and, and, and killing the game dead there. And, and they didn't do that. And they let Trinidad and Tobago back in it. Some, you know, really awful defensive mistakes, which really uh, it doesn't look good going forward. I mean, there's some real question marks there. Um, I'd, I'd say more than anything, a lot of question marks now with this with this Mexico team. I mean, defensively, you know, in what kind of shape it is going forward, you know, what formation he's going to play, you know, what's the spirit in the camp at the minute, considering that, you know, you've just drawn against Trinidad and then a few days ago you drew against Guatemala. I mean, these are really bad results for, for a Mexico team that has, you know, a lot of talent, you know, player for player. For me, for me, I've said it before, Jason, you know, the best, the best team player for player in this tournament. And, you know, it's just not, um, it's not being shown on the field right now. It certainly is not. Now, how much of that reflects back on Miguel Herrera? Because, you know, at, at one point in time, they were Mexico was flying high under Piojo, and it was uh, everything was great, and he, his enthusiasm was infectious. And I think you and I talked about what happens when that message sort of, uh, you know, becomes tired, and and he doesn't have that impact anymore. And it's not about being enthusiastic about about playing for Mexico; it's about getting the job done. Has he reached that point at the, uh, at right now? He's, he's in a difficult situation and this has been a bad summer for Mexico I mean obviously the Copa America uh, Mexico out in the group stage and, and the big excuse was there was you know it's a second team and then you come to the Gold Cup you draw the first two friendlies against Costa Rica and Honduras and then you draw two of the three group games so he's, he's under pressure he's been changing formations from 4-4-2 4-3-3 5-2-3 and then last night 5-3-2 so I mean I think that gives tells the story that you know, he doesn't know exactly what his best formation is. He doesn't exactly know what he wants to do with his team. And that's, from a Mexican point of view, uh, worrisome. Um, although he denies it, he, he says he's got a fixed idea of how he wants this team to play. And, and he's, he's defended his players. He said that they've actually played quite well so far this tournament. They haven't got, a, they haven't got much luck. But I don't know. I think those, those kind of 
those complaints about not having luck and not, I think they're wearing a bit thin now. I mean, the re- you, you got to get results. And mm. let's be honest, you know, teams like Guatemala, Trinidad, I think, have got a bit more quality. But these these aren't top, top teams. And, and you look at Mexico's players and they should be winning these games. And uh, I think the, the pressure's every game that Mexico aren't getting these results, um, the pressure on Miguel Herrera is rising. And, and he's not looking as comfortable at all in press conferences and, and around campus as he once did. Now, last night, I mean, as you said, uh, Kenwin Jones was fantastic beyond the, the own goal, which seems to be more bad luck than, than an error on him. I mean, it's certainly an error, but more bad luck than anything else. And they, they had problems. Mexico had, had significant problems with Jones up the left flank. Um, heading into the game against Costa Rica, where is the, where's the trouble for Mexico? Uh, you're not, you maybe don't have a center forward of, of Jones's quality on the other side, but, but, you know, you could certainly see some danger coming off the flanks. Yeah, definitely. I mean, <laughs> I mean, we don't know what formation Arrera is going to play. Um, I think that definitely on the flanks, if he plays a back four, then I think, you know, Aguilar and Layuna are weak defensively. I think that teams, any team will try and get in behind them. Um, so yeah, Costa Rica, obviously, they've not done well so far this tournament, but you have to feel that they've got a bit more quality than Trinidad and they've got definitely more quality than Guatemala. So, you know, they've got a very good chance and there's a feeling now that, I don't know, Mexico really have to, have to step it up, else else they'll be heading out of the quarterfinal stage, and and it's hard to overestimate what a disaster that would be for for this team. You know, it's, it's been a lot of talk, Tom, about uh, Concacaf getting better overall, and certainly the gap closing between the top teams and everybody else. And and, and Herrera has made a lot of comments about this, and spoken about. I believe before the Guatemala game, he said something about uh, there are no there are no giants anymore in Concacaf. Things have changed. I, I I don't know that you and I have talked about it yet, but I say, I send, I tend to think that that's more a reflection of where the U.S. and Mexico and Costa Rica are right now than it is about everybody else. Not that there's not improvement below them, but maybe not as much as as it, is, it appears that there is based on this tournament and its results. Yeah, I mean, I think that it's not just Concacaf. I just think you know, the smaller nations now are, are nations with less resources. I think coaches are better. I think there's more awareness of how to get results against better teams uh, I think that's just general in, in world soccer um, but I, th- I think that you know I, d- I don't like what Herrera says about you know the gap in CONCACAF because at the end of the day these teams might be catching up Mexico but the idea for Mexico for me their idea should be to catch up the big teams so I think you know alright these t- these teams are catching up they're, they're div- more difficult to beat but I think the overall general question that Mexico has to ask and the federation has to ask is is this Mexico team under Miguel Herrera catching up Germany and Argentina. I know that might sound slightly ridiculous, but with the resources that this Mexican federation has, with the players, the size of the country, um, you know, Mexico should be a, a top 10, top 15 nation. And I think that's the that's the wider question is, why can't it even put away a team like Guatemala? Why can't it put away Trinidad? And and the longer term question is, how is it going to get to where it needs to be, which is a you know top 10, top 15 nation? And I think that's a... A huge question that isn't really asked much in Mexico because I think it's quite quite short term the the vision for the national team. So at this point, um, you know, somebody made a joke last night. I can't remember who it was. Somebody that I, I follow on Twitter. Um, they said if this doesn't go well, if this and, and it was in the middle of the game, it may have been when Mexico was in a losing position and they obviously came back and and actually took the lead. But if they had lost that game, I think the the joke was. I'm not sure that they would let Miguel Herrera coach the quarters. Um, <laughs> that the owners may have taken an emergency meeting, uh, the F, the, you know, obviously the, the Liga Max owners and, and, and ousted him. Now, it, it's obviously not to that point. 
Um, he still got them into the quarters. They still have an opportunity to go win the tournament. But is there a possibility that you know if if that doesn't happen, we're 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 talking about a new, a new Mexico manager in a month's time? From what I've heard, I mean, and it does it will depend on what what happens over the next um, you know couple of weeks. I mean, you know, get get to the final, lose a tight game against the Lewis, and I think that's a you know a different story. I think go against go out against Costa Rica and lose two nil and you know really play badly and then I think there will be definite questions from what I've heard I think he will be given at least until the qualifiers and see how the how the first few qualifiers go before you know before any decision is made but you know that I think that will really depend on um on on the results and, and the way that this happens and if Mexico don't win the gold cup then then the the manner that they that they lose it but um I don't know. He's and 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 on Miguel Herrera as well because I think sometimes he doesn't help himself with his, with some of his comments. I think that uh, you know he's he's making these excuses and you know against Trinidad it was his defense and lack of concentration, and then against Guatemala it was his attack and he's just and and he's he's, he's always bringing up this element of luck that Mexico haven't had the luck. But I think in the modern game, you know, you listen to other managers like you know Santos Lagunas, Pedro Caixinha, or. You know, even even the Guatemala manager listening to him, and he's coming up with reasons and, and actually explaining what happened in the game. And I think Herrera's lacked that a little bit. Hmm. At this point, um, okay, let's come back to, to Costa Rica and, to, and talk, just talk about the challenge in front of them. As you said, Costa Rica hasn't been impressive in this tournament so far either. Neither one of these teams is at the level we expected them to be coming in. In fact, Costa Rica finishes second in their group to Jamaica. That's Something of a surprise, although, uh, that's no, you know, I don't want to slight the Jamaicans. Now, with these two teams fairly desperate in, in the sense that not only do they want to win this match and move on to the semifinals, but they also want to prove something to the rest of the region, prove that they're a danger to go win the tournament. Uh, Costa Rica wants to break the U.S. Mexico dominance. Uh, how, what, what's the storyline that most interests you here? And are we going to see something fairly cagey after all of this? Well, I mean, they played a couple of weeks ago and it, and it was a 2-2 draw. So I think there's not much between the two teams at the minute. Um, I think Miguel Herrera is going to stick with his 5-3-2. So I expect it to be a little bit more open. I think Costa Rica feel definitely from that first friendly they played a couple of weeks ago that they feel that they can do Mexico damage. I don't think it's going to be exactly the same as, say, Mexico-Guatemala, which was 80% possession Mexico. So... But you know, I'd say I'd say that both teams go into the game under under pressure. But it's the Me it's Mexico that has the the most pressure because you know one chap there is you know he's he's starting a new process, he's starting a new um, a new path to the next World Cup after taking over from Pinto. So I think he's got a bit more leeway, and obviously Herrera, the Mexico coach, doesn't. Um, I mean, you know. I think I think at the moment, looking at the game last night, it's you know it's flip a coin. I mean. You feel like at any point Mexico have the quality to kind of switch on and and be and become the side that we saw last year at the World Cup. And if they can do that, then there's no reason why they can't defeat Costa Rica, defeat the United States, and and win the Gold Cup. But <laughs> we've not seen that side mm -hmm. really since the World Cup, so that's a it's, it's obviously a huge worry. Uh, Giovanni de Santos came out of that game last night uh, injured. Now this is this is. It's unfortunate timing for the Galaxy, who had just officially confirmed ahead of the game that uh, Giovanni DeSantis would be joining them after the Gold Cup. 
Uh, I know from speaking with people that uh, that the FMF was hoping to delay that announcement and avoid all of those questions. It, it did come out. What's the extent of his injury, and, and what's the prognosis on him playing for the rest of the tournament? Um, it's a like left abductor. I think that's right. I think that's how you describe it in the translation. So it's um, it's it's not a fracture. Um, they're going to carry out some more tests today, but the the, the Mexican doctor last night told us that uh, three to five days. So I'd say it's very unlikely that he's going to make the Costa Rica game on Sunday, um, considering he won't be able to train in that time. And then moving forward, he'll probably be okay for the rest of the tournament. So Galaxy fans can <laughs> breathe easy. Absolutely. And you know, lots of money being spent on, on Giovanni Santos. And, and Tom, I, I, we, we've sort of um, already outlined this, but just give a, a refresher from your perspective of how the reaction has been, both officially, you know, within the Mexico camp, and I know Miguel Herrera has said this won't affect anything with Dos Santos, but also among the fan base, because I know that, that it seems, and I, I'm not going to, I don't want to paint everybody with the same brush, but it seems as though this is an unpopular move on the part of Giovanni. Yeah, he actually went around the stadium last night and did like a periscope of, you know, asking Mexico fans what they think of the move, and, and the vast majority were, he's gone there for the money, it's not good for him, he should have stayed in Europe and, and kept... And, and played in a, in a, in one of the top leagues. So, um, that was the general consensus. But then there's also that element of, uh, you know, it's good to have him here because we, we can, we can go and see him. Mm-hmm. So, um, so yeah, I mean, yeah, I think it's, it, it's huge. I mean, it is a, a huge deal for, for Mexican soccer. And, you know, it's, uh, it's gonna, it's gonna really put a lot of attention on, on MLS, not just from, you know, the Mexican Americans and Mexicans in the United States, but, you know, south of the border as well. I mean, it's going to be, you know, journalists are going to go up there. People down in Mexico are going to really start watching watching the league because of Giovanni, because he is, you know, he's one of the most popular Mexican players. I'd say is, you know, top three, uh, you know, the most popular Mexican player with Chicharito. Uh, you've got, you know, Vela, Guardado, Ochoa. Um, and Giovanni Dos Santos is definitely up there. The, um, the, the, the move has been called, um, by at least one outlet, the the biggest signing in MLS history. Um, I don't know your full appreciation of of MLS history, Tom. I'm certainly you're aware of things the last couple of years, but going back all the way, do you, do you buy that? Do you buy you know? Obviously, Beckham stands out, but is this potentially bigger for MLS than any of that? If only because of the the market that they tap into with Giovanni dos Santos. Uh, I think it's difficult to say, you know, without without seeing him and not seeing what he does. I mean, I think that the, if there is a question mark, it is his discipline off the field. You know, he has had a reputation for going out. He will be in Los Angeles. Um, so, you know, we have to see what he does on the field. Um, but, you know, potentially it is, it, is, it is huge. I mean, I think Beckham was, was also absolutely massive because before that, nobody really understood MLS and I think when Beckham came obviously that was a, a just huge call in for, for the whole league so Giovanni if if he can get it together then just absolutely huge I mean speaking to people last night and it's not just in people in Los Angeles but when when Galaxy play away when they play in Chicago and play in Houston um you know I travel around and you speak to people and you, you people tell me that there's a bit of a disconnect between the Latino community, the Mexico fans and, and their team in, in places like Houston and Chicago. And, you know, you bring someone like Giovanni and, you know, they're, they're instantly going to be going to game, buying the tickets. So potentially it's massive. And 
the, the really interesting thing is going to be if it is successful, then what follows? Because you know he's getting a lot of money, and 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 I think the way I look at it is. Giovanni Dos Santos is worth a lot more in the North American market than in Europe right now. So yeah, he is getting a lot of money, but they'll recoup quite a lot of that money as well. Mm. So if, if, if that kind of balances up, then what other MLS franchises are going to be looking at Memo Ochoa, who's obviously not playing in, in Malaga, mm. you know, even a Vela in a couple of years, obviously Chicharito down the line. So I think it, it, if he does well, it could potentially open up, you know, to, to, to other Mexican players coming down the line. So many, so many different elements to Giovanni Dos Santos signing in LA that, that just aren't about his ability to contribute on the field. Now, Bruce Arena had some interesting comments, Tom, and you, you sort of alluded to uh, Giovanni's reputation for going out and having a good time, and, and clearly that's going to be something worth watching. But what what Bruce Arena said is that he's going to have responsibilities, that he's going to be the focus here, that that there's obviously a community that's going to put a lot of pressure on Giovanni Dos Santos not only to play well for the Galaxy. But also just be a uh, a figure within that that community. In, in in essence, he has stepped from being you know a, a moderately talented fish in a in a pretty big pond in Europe in various places to the biggest one of the biggest fishes fish in a in a smaller pond here in the United States. Is that is that something he can handle mentally? It's a difficult one. I mean, I think Giovanni dos Santos has been harmed. His reputation was harmed when Harry Redknapp. At Tottenham, he said, you know, Giovanni could, just can't walk past a nightclub without, without going in. <laughs> so I don't know how fair that was, but I mean, from what you hear, he, he does have that reputation. I think he has definitely um, become more mature. Um, he's making a lot of money, so you expect him to obviously be extremely professional about, about how he goes about it. Um, but, but it is a question mark. It is definitely a question mark. And I, th- I think that one of the positives that arena you know such an experienced coach a coach who's not going to be he's not going to stand for whoever it is he's not going to stand if if a, if a player's having problems with discipline he's he's, he's going to come out and call them out and i think that's that's a real positive for giovanni compared to going to a club where you know perhaps the coach will just will play him because he's the highest right. paid player and and therefore he's the star of the team and he'll just walk I think that that absolutely is a big factor here. That Bruce Arena is not—he's a no-nonsense kind of coach. He's not going to deal with Giovanni being a distraction, Tom, and, and especially—and and again, you have strong elder leadership on this team, and Robbie Keane, and now Steven Gerrard, and there's certainly a, a, a group of players who are Galaxy through and through, and have been there for years, who will not allow. Probably, you know, they'll do with their best not to allow Giovanni Circus to change what they're doing, and they've lived through the vacuum period. No, yeah, definitely. I think, uh, yeah, I mean, I think the setup's there. I think he's gone to the, definitely gone to the right MLS club. I mean, I think I think it's well established. Obviously, that club has also lived through the Beckham thing, so you know, it's uh, it's going to probably be going to be something quite similar in terms of you know that area, the Los Angeles area and the Southern California area, because you know, Gio is is that popular. I mean, you know, look at the group stage of this gold cup the power of mexico fans economically in the united states is huge i mean it's not that's nothing new but i mean look at the group stage there was double the average attendance in group c than the other two groups i mean and obviously the united states plays the gold cup at home but mexico's got double the attendance so the, the power is absolutely huge and 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 giovanni uh will have to will have to deal with with all that pressure that that comes with you know people specifically buying tickets to see him now, Tom, I know you've been in the U.S. covering Mexico, so maybe you don't have your finger on the pulse of what's happening 
down uh, south of the border at the moment. But do you do you think that this is going to s- come across as a a game changing moment for the dynamic between MLS and, and Liga Mekis? I mean, we know that that the the Mexican league has more money across the board. We know there are teams making big moves this off season to bolster their team and bring in some names. But, you know, clearly when L.A. is willing to step up and give Giovanni Dos Santos $7 million a year and pay what I think is something like a $10 million, $12 million uh, transfer fee, I'm not sure, p- positive on that number, th- then that, that indicates that there's continue going to be continued battles between these two leagues when it comes to spending. Can this be viewed as a, as a turning point? I think the interesting thing is that Tigres made an offer for Giovanni. I, mean, I heard that in a Spanish publication also also uh, published it. So, And Giovanni politely declined and said, you know, I don't want to come back to Mexico now. But he's obviously been enticed by this offer from from MLS. I, I don't think it's a turning point right now, honestly. Okay. I think that um, it, it all depends on how he does. You know, I think, I think at the minute in Mexico, people are looking at like Giovanni's gone there because he can get loads of money. And I think the perception in Mexico is that players go to MLS because they can make a lot of money. Um, so I think if Giovanni can do well, can capture attention, can you know fill stadiums, um, and then you know, Concacaf Champions League comes up and and they make an impact and they and they really start you know defeating Mexican teams over over the course of a few years, then I think as soon as that happens, people in Mexico are really going to sit up and take notice. It has to it has to happen on the field. I think you're probably right. It has to happen on the field. It can't just happen uh, in the headlines with these. With yeah, these I mean, I mean, I mean, Jason. It's like you know, Tigres have signed Gignac, mm-hmm. um, Andre Pierre Gignac from from Marseille. I mean, on a world level, which is the bigger signing in terms of who, which is the, who's the better player? I mean, oh, it's, yeah. it's, sure. I'm not I'm not I'm not saying it's the, there's one or the other, but there's there's not much between them. You know what I mean? So so I think the Mexican league has been obviously. And the players that have come from South America of late, you know, they've been making the moves as well. So um, maybe not to the most. Maybe the PR isn't isn't quite as good though. <laughs> right. Right. Well, clearly, there's a dip. Yeah. I mean, there's there's a different level of notoriety, even if the player himself is is probably a better player and will help them on the field in a, in a di- sort of different way. And, and again, across the, across their team, Tigres stronger than the LA Galaxy. I mean, just based on the the spending and, and the ability to spend. Where the Galaxy have to, uh, you know, they spend on four players at the top end. They're they're not spending nearly as much uh, on the on the middle and bottom of their of, of their roster. All right, let's come to Chicharito quickly because um, I think that the the story has now drifted well beyond MLS, and and he's clearly got some um, some European interest, and he'll be joining United on their U.S. tour and quote unquote given a chance. What, what do you make of that? Yeah, given a chance to to sell a few tickets, <laughs> I think. Uh, yeah, I mean, we'll see. I mean, honestly, with with Louis Van Gaal, I don't think you ever really, really know what he's thinking behind behind those words. I mean, um, yeah, it wouldn't surprise me if 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 he if he stays at United, sees out his contract. But at the same time, I still think the most likely is that he does move on. The I mean. There are obviously a lot of teams interested in him. His agent has said that you know West Ham was the most recent one, and I think that would be a you know quite a nice fit. He'd get get minutes there. It's a it's a very good club with a lot of history, and and in 2016 they're moving to the uh, Olympic Stadium, so somewhere like that would be good. I think the Orlando rumor. Um, well, you know, I was speaking to a couple of people yesterday, and I just think that the offer is 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 way below what what Chicharito would need to 
to make that move right now in his career to MLS. So I think that's pretty much dead in the water as of now. Um, so, yeah, I mean, we'll see. It wouldn't surprise me if it also goes to the, the, the last few days of August as well, because if it's not happened now, then you feel like he's going to continue to keep his options open until until the, the end of the transfer window. All right, Tom. So sum up. Uh, so far, this tournament has not been an absolute disaster, if only because they're still alive. But Mexico finishing second. First of all, has that ever happened in the Gold Cup, especially in the uh, the modern era? A, a second place finish in a, in a group stage? Um, I'm not sure. I don't think so because I don't so. think I'm, I'm not sure they've even really dropped points in the group stage. Just right. because obviously Concacaf keeps keeps teams apart, and you know, US and Mexico are, are, are given usually pretty pretty comfortable groups yeah certainly so the 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 drop points against guatemala uh the draw against Trinidad and tobago obviously uh five points from the group uh, much lower than you would expect from mexico all right so so they finished second in the group but again they're still alive in the group stage and the fact that costa rica hasn't impressed has got to give mexican fans a little bit of confidence going forward and certainly they would expect to be costa rica all things being equal any year um I suppose I guess my my final question will be: Is are they good enough to go and win this thing? I mean, their their side of the bracket a little bit more difficult than the American side of the bracket. They they're going to have to face either Trinidad and Tobago again or or Panama, who's who's no pushover in the semifinal. Definitely, Mexico are definitely good enough to to win the tournament. I mean, I don't, I don't think there's any any doubt about that. But there are just so many concerns right now that. You know, every every game you expect this Mexico team to start clicking, and uh, at the end of the day, it's not happening. And and I think there are some reasons behind that. Um, I think they're complicated, and you know, the the real worry is that it's Miguel Herrera that doesn't know that, and he doesn't know how he's going to get this team working. So it's um it's it's a it's a really difficult time at the minute for the for the Mexico national team, and uh, and and this time around, although Chicharito's out and Moreno's out. There really, there aren't any excuses. This is Mexico's best team. These are players that majority of who play in Europe. Um, so th- there, are, there are no excuses now, and, and and the team's not playing. And at the end of the day, the talent's there to to do it, but it's not it's not happening. So it's uh, it's a bit up in the air at the minute. It's, it's difficult to predict what's going to happen in uh, on Sunday against Costa Rica. Uh, lots of pressure, no guarantees. Tom Marshall, Mexico World Cup. Follow him. On Twitter and read all of his work. He, he's over at ESPN FC, uh, writing on the Mexican side of things. Uh, Tom, appreciate the time. Thank you very much. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Jason. Thanks for having me. There goes Tom Marshall. Good stuff from him. When we come back, we will talk to Seth Bertelny, who was in D.C. at the hearing held by the Senate subcommittee on FIFA corruption. Don't go anywhere. Soccer morning. WorldSoccerTalk.com. This Saturday, the U.S. men's national team will play in the quarterfinals of the Gold Cup and will be two steps away from reaching the final for the sixth consecutive tournament. Soccer Morning listeners, I'd like to invite you to join me as I'll be sharing my thoughts and opinions during the game live on Rabble.tv. With Rabble.tv, the concept is simple. All you have to do is tune into the broadcast on TV, press the mute button, and then head on over to Rabble.tv to listen to me sharing my analysis. With Rabble, you can listen to my broadcast on your desktop, through your iOS app, and now through your mobile browser. You can join in, too, by posting your questions or observations in the comments section. Will Jurgen Klinsmann be able to get this U.S. team firing in all cylinders again? 
Find out this Saturday, July 18th at 5 p.m. Eastern and cheer on the red, white, and blue with me live on Rabble.tv. Welcome back to Soccer Morning on World Soccer Talk with Jason Davis. Here we are back on Soccer Morning, turning now to issues of FIFA corruption. Because the Senate has taken notice, people up on Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C., decided to hold a hearing yesterday. And this hearing involved Andrew Jennings, noted investigative reporter who has looked into FIFA corruption for years, Dan Flynn, CEO and Secretary General of U.S. Soccer. And a man who was there covering the event was uh, Seth Vertelny from Goal. He's on the line with us now. Hey, Seth. What's up, Jason? Uh, so how many Senate subcommittee hearings have you attended in your lifetime? Oh, dozens. But, you know, <laughs> yesterday was by far the most enthralling. Yeah. Now, look, coming into this, uh, for me, though, the main story and Look, we know, okay, we'll, we'll outline the context of these hearings here in a second. But coming in, the story for me was the fact that they had issued uh, this, the Senate uh, Subcommittee on uh, Consumer Protection, Product Safety, Insurance, and Data Security, it's a hell of a name, had, <laughs> had asked U.S. Soccer to send somebody. And they said, hey, you have a president. His name is Sunil Gulati. Why don't you send that guy? And uh, U.S. Soccer basically said, well, we don't want to send anybody. But if we have to, we'll send Dan Flynn, CEO of U.S. Soccer. Um, did for you coming in was it did i make too much of the bad look for u.s soccer that snuggle did not attend yeah i think that it was a a question of uh is it a bad look sending dan flynn in sunil galati's place or is it a bad look sending sunil galati and possibly having him get grilled and saying something that maybe he wished that he hadn't said so i think in the end U.S. Soccer decided that they would be better served sending Dan Flynn, a guy who is way less of a public figure than Sunil Gulati. I mean, I'd be willing to bet that a lot of people in the U.S. Soccer community didn't even know who Dan Flynn was until yesterday. Um, Sunil Gulati, obviously the, one of the more public figures in the uh, U.S. Soccer world, and as of 2013, a member of the FIFA Executive Committee. So, I think that it was a, a calculated decision for from U.S. Soccer to say, all things considered, we would be better off just sending Dan Flynn and let him take the brunt of uh, the uh, questioning. Okay, let's say let's uh, let's say this, and then this is the context of these hearings. Uh, they don't tend to get a lot done. They seem to be more often about grandstanding on the part of the politicians than any actual information being delivered uh, by the witnesses. Uh, we all remember. There's a couple of of touchstone moments in committees that we remember, one of them being PEDs in baseball and Mark McGuire and Sammy Sosa. Um, how did Dan Flynn do in this particular environment where, again, it's sort of about Moran and Blumenthal and everybody else making their scoring their political points? Yeah, I don't think that there was a whole lot of information that we got. I think Flynn at times was a little awkward there there was some questions that he had to pause there was one in particular where he started answering it and then consulted with uh, an attorney for about 10 seconds and then started to answer again um but 
basically Flynn kind of stuck to his his talking points, uh, which was that you know U.S. soccer is only so powerful in the world of CONCACAF and in the world of FIFA. Uh, he said that U.S. soccer had supported things like releasing the full Garcia report. U.S. soccer had publicly backed Prince Ali against Seb Blatter, and these were things that showed that U.S. soccer was serious about reform. Uh, now, when, when the questions came, uh, he tried to say that, that he didn't know anything about anything, uh, he got pressed a little bit and then eventually said that he felt, quote, some discomfort at times. <laughs> um, <laughs> so from there, you know, Slapping there was a, 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 some lines of questioning and it got a little bit awkward. Yeah. Uh, but uh, Flynn didn't produce a whole lot of specifics about his discomfort and basically said, in the end, he never had anything more than this discomfort. Uh, he didn't have any concrete evidence that mm. he would have felt comfortable moving forward with i i've got some quotes from your write-up at goal that i that i want to read from flynn i knew nothing about any corruption i or anybody that i work with has not brought to anything to my attention cold hard facts regarding corruption within fifa or Concacaf. i was aware of some level of discomfort but it was a general feeling so i had no hard evidence uh, there were moments I would describe if I had a level of discomfort, I would not participate. I would just get myself out of any situation that offered a level of discomfort. This is like a, this is like a 16 year old going to a party where there's alcohol and he knows he's going to get in trouble. So he just kind of stands in the corner and watches, but doesn't actually get him. Get, he's not going to get anybody in trouble. Doesn't want to call the cops on his friends. Um, you know, like and Andrew Jennings was out throwing haymakers as well. Give me a sense of, of what he said, because I think what we, what we're going to get to here is, uh, is the obvious. Uh, cognitive dissonance that is U.S. soccer denying any knowledge while this stuff happened right under their noses. Well, Andrew Jennings, as as we learned yesterday, uh, does not care. Uh, he's just going to say whatever he wants to. And um, basically, a lot of it was kind of his personal speculation. But of course, he has earned the right to be in front of this subcommittee. He's been the guy that's been on this FIFA story longer than anyone and has done more than any other journalist to expose FIFA. Um, but he said, you know, U.S. soccer had to know. Uh, they looked away, but they had to know. Um, you know, he used the term sleazebags. Uh, he, was, he, he was having a great time out there, you could tell. Um, but uh, essentially, Jennings is saying that there's no way that U.S. soccer wasn't aware of what was going on and that U.S. soccer should have done more. And if they did do more, then things would have actually worked out better from that for them, uh, you know, from the perspective of maybe they would have taken away the Qatar World Cup. Maybe the voting would have never even gotten to Qatar. Uh, who knows? But uh, Jennings was also kind of beating the drum of where Sunil, um, he said that, Galati not being there undermined the entire process. He said that Galati not being there showed that he had contempt for the entire process. Ooh. And, uh, you know, some of the senators that were involved in the committee picked up on this and were, were questioning Flynn about it. And, you know, Flynn offered, uh, you know, kind of a weak response saying that, yeah, I'm more, I have more knowledge of the day to day operations, but, um, uh, you know, we know why Flynn was there and, and, and not Sunil. Uh, and so Jennings really was, was pounding home his points and, and trying to make his voice heard. 
Uh, you know, again, this just comes down to the fact that U.S. soccer wanted to participate in the process while attempting to hold themselves above the fray, at least when it came to the out-and-out obvious corruption. Um, here, here's a, This is a pretty money quote and, and a, a, you know, a telling of, of how they viewed this situation. Uh, when pressed about why he or his federation failed to do more about the corruption, Flynn spoke of what he called the two-choice equation which he said involves either leaving FIFA entirely and ending its ability to influence change or staying and attempting to act reforms inside CONCACAF and FIFA. Quote, we wanted to continue to participate and try to influence the organization as one of 209 members, Flynn said, uh, emphasizing the, the support of uh, Prince Ali, as you mentioned, and, and the support of the Garcia reports. Um, you know, I, I think it's I, I said back when when the U.S. was bidding for 2022, Seth and and we were doing this whole you know it, it is the U.S. what it's in us whatever the hell that that phrase was it was terrible by the way I told I said I said throughout that process that if they weren't willing to participate in the FIFA shenanigans they were naive and they weren't going to win and why even bother and I think I I think I and a lot of people were proven right on that front and yet they continue to be they continue to do this I don't know what the senators want. I don't know. I think they may have put a little too much on U.S. soccer. Is there a, definitely a sense that they didn't really understand how the whole thing works? Yeah, definitely. And I, I think that was one of Flynn's main talking points that he kept going back to was, we're just one federation. We only have so much power. You know, you're calling U.S. soccer in front of a Senate subcommittee hearing to answer for the sins of FIFA and CONCACAF, which is which are obviously much bigger organizations than just U.S. soccer. You know, U.S. soccer is one of 209 FIFA organizations. And even within CONCACAF, there are 35 voting members. And, and that was one thing that Flynn was saying, was even at, at CONCACAF meetings, felt like the way that it's structured with each nation having the same amount of power, one vote for one country, that he felt like, the U.S. couldn't really do a whole lot when you're talking about 35 voting nations, 25 of which are from the Caribbean, which is where Jack Warner's from, Trinidad and Tobago. So this was something that he kept going back to again and again and again. We can only do so much within the current structure of FIFA and CONCACAF. Now, the whole thing sort of devolved, uh, again, talking about scoring political points on the part of uh, of these senators who were there, uh, Blumenthal and Moran, and I'm, I'm forgetting somebody else, but there was clearly a sense that they didn't want to just tackle FIFA corruption and U.S. soccer's role in it or uh, com uh, complacency, uh, uh, just standing by. They also wanted to hit on a bunch of other soccer topics. Right. Um, they, they did bring up uh, some of the issues with uh, how much the U.S. women's team got paid for winning the World Cup compared to how much... The uh, the men's teams get paid, which you know, first of all, that's it's 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 a more complicated issue, I think, than equal pay for equal work. You know, both the FIFA Women's World Cup and the FIFA Men's World Cup generate such different revenues. But uh, the main thing was, yeah, it it wasn't really related to what the committee was there for, <laughs> uh, and I think that there were a couple of senators there just trying to score some points. I mean, listen, their, their, their hearts are in the right place. I mean, I think that most people would agree that women should get paid the same as men for doing the oh, same sure. work. Yes. But uh, I, I think that there were certainly 
elements of these arguments that that didn't have all the information that they needed to have. Yeah, hey, U.S. Soccer, why didn't you do this thing that actually falls under FIFA's uh, <laughs> FIFA's uh, mandate? Why are you not changing FIFA all by yourselves, including up to and including corruption and equal pay? Uh, what was the like I said, it devolved a bit. What was the funniest moment for you in terms of you know? You know the soccer fans are quick to 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 fire shots at people who get stuff wrong, and and I I think sometimes you go overboard with Seth with that Seth, but sometimes when you know we're talking about a U.S. senator sitting up there, bloviating to have them get a name wrong or butcher some relationship or or say FIFA wrong, is a funny moment. Yeah, it, it it's it is a little embarrassing for the senators involved when they're calling this subcommittee meeting and. They say seep bladder and FIFA. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's that's a little troubling uh, from the perspective of somebody who wants to make sure that this subcommittee is doing everything they can to get all the information that they're trying to get. It's, and and we, what we, what I think we we realized from this experience as soccer fans, and and I know some of us are more political than others, and probably have an understanding of this. But what struck me, and again, I know this, it's just sort of reinforced by this whole experience. These things are typically, again, they're typically dog and pony shows meant for very little. There's not a whole lot of fact finding going on here. This is more about, again, the grandstanding, the, the, the political point making. And they, these people, meaning the, our elected officials, they deal with so much. I'm going to take a little bit of the burden off of them, although I think that in a lot of cases we can criticize, but they deal with so much. And they're, they're, fa- they're, they're trying to understand so much that they are woefully underinformed on a lot of different things that then, then, then they then try to make into serious topics that they're taking on. I mean, that, if nothing else, the fact that somebody says FIFA and seep bladder tells you <laughs> that they just didn't do the basic research necessary to come into this, uh, this hearing prepared, Seth. Right. I, I, and I do think that it is a lot of, uh, about, politics it's about saying look what we did we took u.s soccer to task we are combating this problem with fifa corruption and i think the more and more visibility that soccer gets within our country uh especially with the women's national team winning the the world cup recently which was mentioned again and again by every senator and dan flynn um (laughs) again not related to what they were there for but these are things that, that can score more political points saying that, look, we're trying to, to clean up FIFA. We're trying to make international soccer a better place for everybody involved. So I, I think that uh, you're, you're, you're definitely right about that, that there, there, there's a lot of politics and there wasn't a whole lot of really solid information that, that we were able to get from yesterday's hearing. Yeah, look, I mean, U.S. soccer is actually not beholden to the government in uh, in any way out, you know, within the law. I mean, if they break a law, clearly. But, you know, these these senators, they, they don't have any power over U.S. soccer. U.S. soccer is not a governmental body. It's not funded by the government. There's really nothing they can do except make Dan Flynn feel uncomfortable. Right. And I think an important thing to also talk about is that these people weren't under oath and none of the four uh, witnesses that were testifying were under oath. Um, so I think, you know, if they really want to make things serious, you know, the, they would try to issue subpoenas. I, I 
have to admit, I don't know how that would work in a legal process, <laughs> right. but uh, you know, right. it, it was basically a Q and A session. It was, it was, it, it almost had the the feel of a press conference where you know they they were asking questions and pressing and trying to get stuff, but the people that were answering the questions were able to sort of craft the answer in the way that they wanted. Yeah, regardless of whether or not there was any value coming out of it, I think what the, the fact that it happened is interesting, and the fact that you know this doesn't change the fact that U.S. soccer was complicit on some level in everything that was going on in FIFA on on a bigger scale, but certainly within CONCACAF over the past, we're talking about 30 years, Seth. I mean, we're talking about, or maybe not 30, maybe 25, but we're talking about, you know, uh, Chuck Blazer having influence within CONCACAF for a long time, being an American, and I think there was a telling moment when Dan Flynn at one point said we haven't had representation at FIFA until the last two years when Sunil Gulati was on the executive committee and Andrew Jennings coming up later and saying, what are you talking about? Chuck Blazer was on the executive committee since 1995. Right. I I think a, a really important point to make is that U.S. soccer does have some plausible deniability in this situation. Chuck Blazer was not affiliated with U.S. soccer after 1986 in an official sense in in an official sense but he's american he's operating in american borders there's absolutely no way that they're not regularly talking to chuck to to chuck blazer regularly communicating regularly visiting his hotel his uh, apartment of cats i mean uh, or at least you know (laughs) hanging (laughs) out with him in new york i think think you're right um i think that you can speculate and it would be right to speculate uh, and certainly Blazer and Galati have been close over the years, which I think is another reason why they sent Dan Flynn in Galati's place. Ah, yeah. But, uh, you know, in, in the end, everything involved in the DOJ report is with CONCACAF officials. It's with CONMEBOL officials. It's with FIFA officials. It doesn't touch U.S. soccer. And, and because of that. Right. Dan Flynn can get up in front of the subcommittee and say, I didn't know anything about any corruption and Mm. probably get away with it. Yeah, we're talking about the difference between illegality and actually breaking the law the way that certainly everybody under that indictment did. And the and U.S. soccer's, as you said, plausible deniability. Let's all thank Ollie North for coming up with that back in 1987 or whatever it was around the Iran Contra affair. Thank you. A very, that's how, that's where the level is now with plausible deniability. Uh, Seth Vertelli from Gold. Seth, the last thing here. Um, and, and this, this is, I'm, my tongue is firmly in my cheek uh, with this question, but have we made it now? Has soccer made it? I mean, we got, we got senators, Richard Blumenthal and Jerry Moran. We got them sitting up there making a political issue out of soccer. I mean, Moran's statement to open up the proceedings said something about soccer's the biggest sport in the world and blah, blah, blah. We've made it, right? It's happened. I mean, soccer's on C-SPAN 3. I think that's pretty much all you need to know. But if we if we really want to say soccer has made it, the chairman of this committee has to pronounce FIFA right. Yes, that's probably true. Damn it, we're <laughs> not there yet. Seth Fertility from Goal. Go read his write-up on the events of yesterday on Capitol Hill as a bunch of senators got together and grilled Dan Flynn. Let Andrew Jennings do his thing. We've had him on the show. He's fantastic. Uh, Seth, thank you very much for the time. I appreciate it, man. Yeah, thanks for having me, Jason. All right, let's take a break. When we come back, we'll open up the phone lines and talk to you for a couple of minutes on a Thursday. Let's do that. WorldSoccerTalk.com. Soccer Morning. I'll be right back.
Welcome back to Soccer Morning on World Soccer Talk with Jason Davis. We are back on Soccer Morning on a Thursday. Phone lines are now open. 646-832-3909 is your phone number. That's not your phone number. It's my it's our phone number. It's the phone number we share as a soccer community in order to have discussions about what's going on in this lovely world of football that we enjoy every day. That's what I'm trying to say. 646-832-3909. Lots to talk about today. Mexico in the Gold Cup. United States in the Gold Cup. Now with a quarterfinal opponent determined. Cuba, Baltimore, Saturday. How do you feel? I mean, you wouldn't expect Cuba to, per, per, to pose much threat. I mean, in any other situation, you go Cuba in Baltimore. Man, we got this. This is, this is a walk. Maybe you don't win for nothing because the United States doesn't do that except against Guatemala in a friendly, but maybe you get two nothing then and you feel confident going into the semis. And remember, this is broken out so nicely for the U.S. Somebody compared it to the, to the women's world cup. I'm not saying nothing, but this is a broken out very nicely for the Americans. Cuba in the quarterfinals. Over on the other side, you know, the, their their opponent will come from the winner of Haiti and Jamaica. Now we've seen Haiti surprise a little bit, but you don't put a lot of stock in in. in I mean, obviously the United States has already had to play Haiti and won one nothing. They surprised just in how they took that game to the Americans. So maybe you don't want to play them again. But then the other alternative is Jamaica. And, uh, you know, Jamaica poses a different kind of threat. Certainly direct, certainly very quick, physical, athletic. Lots of talent in Jamaica's squad. Uh, and, you know, with the way the United States has played, I'm not going to even say that the Americans will have the possession edge in that game because you never know. Over on the other side, that, so that, that's the United States side of the bracket. They beat Cuba. They faced one of Haiti and Jamaica to go to the final in Philadelphia on July 26th. On the other side, on Sunday, Trinidad, Trinidad and Tobago and Panama. And East Rutherford, New Jersey. And Mexico against Costa Rica. Mexico against Costa Rica in a Gold Cup quarterfinal. Not a semifinal. Not a final. Quarterfinal. That's pretty amazing to me. You thought for a while that despite all of the struggles, normal service would resume here in the, in the Gold Cup. You thought, hey, you know, I understand the Americans struggled coming out of the gates, and Mexico, while they beat Cuba, didn't impress a whole lot with it, and they could have put away a lot more in, in that game. And, oh, look, you know, Costa Rica, okay, sure, so they draw Jamaica, but they still got this, this, this opportunity here to go and win the group. And then... Look, the United States took care of their business, but that's partly down to the to the group kind of falling apart. It's not as though the United States, you know, just dominated their group. I mean, they got seven points. Draw against Panama on their final match. Things could have been slightly different. I don't know. Let's talk to our our, our boy Daniel in uh, Atlanta. What's up, Daniel? Hey, it's Jason. Jason, it's Cam from Atlanta. Oh, okay. um, how are you doing today? Cam, what's going on, man? Hey, man, not much. Great show today. Um, my first question is uh, changing the subject from Gold Cup to uh, Giovanni, the Giovanni Dos Santos signing with LA Galaxy. Sure. Now that uh, we see Tam being used to bring him in, when you look at a team like DC United, and I know that's a team that's in your backyard, 
do you just see them and, and other team owners in the rest within MLS? Are they just so far behind um, LA Galaxy that uh, we won't see them start bringing in talent like like this kind of signing for many years to come? And do you feel like this is a good or bad signing for MLS? It's an amazing signing for MLS. Take the last question first. It's a huge, massive, amazing, you absolutely have to do it no matter what it takes signing for MLS. I mean, within reason. You're not going to give the guy $15 million, but if you if you have a chance to sign him within your accepted top-end realm for a DP, you do it. As for whether or not the rest of the league will catch up ever, first of all, your specific example of DC United, it's impossible to judge them until they're in their new building. I'm not going right, right. to say anything about DC United and their ability to spend until they're in a building they control with revenue they control, dates they control, no raccoons and falling concrete blocks. Let's just say that. <laughs> um, I, you know, but there will always be, there will always be teams like, like, uh, Columbus or I guess you could put Colorado in the mix, although I think that's more than, uh, more of an issue of will on Cronky's behalf. He just doesn't want to spend the money. It's not like Stan Kroenke doesn't have the money. He doesn't want to spend the money. Those are two different things. And I think it's important to take each team case by case. Some of them are just right. cheap teams. Some of them are cheap teams who don't have the, the resources of L.A., certainly, or, 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 or Seattle or New York. So, you know, when we look at Columbus, we can go, okay, look, Anthony Precourt is a rich guy, but that doesn't mean he's rich on the level of let's go spend $8 million on a DP. So... They, those teams right. just have to find new ways to compete. And look, Columbus has got a very good team right now. And you know what they did? They, they leveled out their payroll better than everybody, than a lot of, a lot of teams have. Um, you know, uh, New England has a very good team despite the fact they're not spending lots of money on three players. They're spending a little bit of money, uh, DP level money on Jermaine Jones. That's about it. Right. Well, do you see when, I mean, because it, it concerns me when I see a Stan Cocky in Colorado. He spent, I don't know how many millions of dollars beefing up the front office. They have probably more people in the front office, sporting directors and uh, directors of soccer, than any other team that I know of, maybe other than the LA Galaxy. And yet, the product on the field is horrible. Yeah. The Colorado Rapids have been horrible not only this season, but for the last four seasons. I mean, how do you explain it that an owner like Stan Kroenke has a franchise as bad as the Colorado Rapids? Uh, I don't think he can. I really don't think he can. I think if we're talking about the shame, the shame of MLS when it comes to which franchise is not only poor but isn't trying despite resources, because you know what, Philadelphia, for as bad as things have gone in Philadelphia, for all of the problems under Nick Sakevich. their issue is more about resources than anything else. Jay Sugarman just doesn't have as much money as everybody else in the league or a lot of teams in the league can't compete on that level, they've had some issues. I, I, I think we should be careful about asking people to spend their money. Like, hey, that's not my money. It's yours. Go spend it. That, that's a, that, that gets right. into a dicey area. But again, Stan Kroenke is a billionaire. We're not talking about a guy who's going to get hit too hard if he puts an investment into his team and spends $4 million on a DP. Instead, they go out and they find and, and they get uh, Vicente Sanchez, who's a good player, but you know, you, you're paying that guy $600,000 or whatever it is. It's not, it's, it's not a ton of money. So I think that Colorado is maybe top of that list of teams that are not only are they bad, but they're bad in spite of having resources 
that should make them good, if you know what I'm saying. Am I, am I putting that out Absolutely. there the right way? Yeah. yeah. I totally agree. And the thing that frustrates me and, and concerns me at the same time is that LA Galaxy has shown a prime example of how if you spend the money to bring in the right DPs, you can get huge multi-million dollar local TV deals, sell a ton of shirts, and put fannies in the seat to generate more revenue and build your brand. With this type of example, I'm just confused that other owners like a Stan Kroenke can't see the value in what they're doing because their stadium is empty. Yeah. I don't know, man. It's it's an interesting question. Appreciate the call. Got to move on. Got a bunch of people. There you go. Uh, Let's uh, talk to our friend Vince up in Toronto. What's up, Vince? Oh, hey, Jason. How's it going? Oh, hey, Vince. You know, uh, I was watching the Mexico Trinidad game last night, and you know, this is a phenomenal four-four draw. And I'm just like, you know, one day in my life, I'll, I'll see Canada play to a four-four draw. And that would be a giant, giant step forward, right? Like, even if it was a four-four draw with like Guatemala, you'd be okay with that. You know, Jason, I'd kill for a two-two draw. You know, at least score more than one goal against you know some decent competition. That would be, uh, I'd be over the moon. But uh, you know, silly me. Uh, 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 I'm a dreamer, Jason, so you know that'll never happen. <laughs> you sound so depressed, Vince. You sound so sad, man. Pick it up a little bit. It's good. It was good soccer uh, we know, saw I... last night. You get and Trevor. Trevor's over here pointing out that you could. You didn't really watch that game so much as you experienced it. Yeah, no, that's true. It was it was ridiculous. I mean, um, uh, you know, Mexican fans aside, and we you know we've already talked that there are issues there. Um, it, it's really nice, especially for, you know, Stephen Hart, uh, the coach of Trinidad who, uh, coached, uh, Toronto and, or not Toronto, Canada, and was the coach during the, the 8-1 debacle. It's, it's nice to see him, you know, come back here and have success with, with, uh, with his home country. And, uh, I had no idea that Trinidad would, would come out of the gate like this 3-1 victory over Guatemala, now this draw against Mexico, where a game that they could have won, uh, but you know, nonetheless, hats off to them because you know, in all of the Caribbean, Jason, it's been a very fun tournament for uh, for those Caribbean nations. Yeah, absolutely. They, they've acquitted themselves very, very well. I mean, even even Cuba, who uh, you know, who manages to get um, a win last night in order to put themselves in the quarterfinals against uh, over Guatemala. I mean, that's a big deal. Thanks for the call, events. I got to move on. Okay, Jason. No problem. Uh, Vince in Toronto. Let's uh, try to get all of these people in. You guys are all calling, and I very much appreciate it. Roberto in Connecticut, you're on the air. What's up? Hey, Jason. Good morning. Good morning. Um, I was just wondering, I don't know if you saw the list of the um, UEFA Best Player in Europe um, nominees. I did not. The 10 nominees. I did not. Well, <laughs> well Trevor better say it, I'll say it. So, um, anyway, um, the 10 nominees are Messi, Neymar, Suarez, Ronaldo, Vidal, Pogba, Pirlo, Suarez, I'm trying to boof on, I'm trying to rack up the last one, but obviously we're going to know that it's going to be the top two, um, Messi and Ronaldo, but in your opinion, who do you think it gets the um, third best player in Europe? Uh, what did you, okay, hold on one second, I'm, I'm about to pull up the short list because I want to get it exactly right, let's see, uh, uh, okay. Sure so, right. well, you mentioned, okay, you, you, the name, maybe the name you missed was Hazard, so you missed Hazard, right? Uh, okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, Hazard. Let's see, uh, Neymar, Pogba, Pirlo, Ronaldo. Mm, man. <laughs> well, you, you have to wonder about like splitting votes, right? So I don't know how the voting works on this exactly, but 
can a guy like Messi win the award and then have you know Suarez finish third? Like I don't know if that's a possibility or not. Not 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 I don't mean not legally. I just mean like would people vote for 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 Suarez as the third best best player if Messi wins best player because they are teammates. Uh let's see. I'll go I, I don't think that matters. All right, fine. Then I'll go Messi, Ronaldo, uh Suarez. Yeah. So let's, let's all do that. Suarez. I don't know because I think he's. Uh, I think he changes. He he individually changes games in ways that a lot of players don't. I know the biting thing is a is a problem, and I know. I mean, the guy was banned for whatever six months. Couldn't even train with his new club. Hit the ground running at Barcelona, and eventually helped them. You know, to the the top of the stacks again. I mean, you know, his abilities individually to sort of take games. I mean, he beat England almost by himself. That's how good the guy is up top. It's it's insane. I, I I don't know that he it will win the third. You know I don't know that he will finish third. But for me, he might be the third best player in the world right now. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And um, secondly, out of those two nominees, there's two mentions of Neymar and Hazard. In your opinion, who do you think is the better player? Neymar, Neymar or Hazard? Uh, yeah, man, it's tough. To, it's tough to take. See, I'm 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 giving Suarez credit for being an individual player in a in an amazing team. It's tough to take Neymar out of Barcelona for some reason, um, and and uh, assess him individually. I think Hazard's probably, probably a more well-rounded player than Neymar, so a better player. Yeah, mm. yeah. All right, that's fine. All right. All right, thanks, Jason. Appreciate the call. It's good stuff from uh, Roberto up in Connecticut. Let's check in with our friend Jose down in Texas. What's up, Jose? Hi, Jason. How are you? I'm well. Got to got to move quickly. What's up? All right. Well, uh, Clinton always talks about comfort zone. So what I wanted to see is clearly Clinton's comfort zone is Michael Bradley. And I think we have an opportunity here in the quarterfinal, not to undermine Cuba, but to perhaps, uh, you know, find an alternative given that, you know, you never know what's going to happen in the future. We never know if Bradley's always going to be well. So how about looking for an alternative as a just in case? Who would you identify as that guy? Perhaps mixed Discarude. I mean, he's been playing him. I mean, he was lost on the last game he played, but I think if we give him more of a forward position like the one Bradley's been playing, maybe he has more of a chance going forward. And I think uh, with Beckerman, that would be a solid midfield. Okay. Uh, I mean, I, I'm not sure I'm sold on mixing that role anymore, but I, I get what you're saying, Jose. It's possible. It's you know, It's a possibility. You, you don't have a lot in that in this in this roster. You don't have a lot in that area. You just don't. And 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 that's why I'm saying that that's his comfort zone. But I mean, we saw what happened in the World Cup when there was no one to substitute uh, Josie Altidore, and it went downhill. I would hate for something like that to happen. And we are maybe in the Copa Centenario, you know, next year if something like that were to happen, we can't have all of our eggs in one basket. And uh, that's mm-hmm. all. Just no, it's, as, it's as true. a fan, I would hate to have Michael Bradley to be injured or something to happen and then be out of ideas. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you there, Jose. Appreciate the phone call. I mean, you just get, you, you are so in a position where if you do lose Michael Bradley, that's, that, that may be the end of whatever, uh, whatever quality you have. Eddie in Brooklyn, final call. What's up, man? Hi, what's up, man? Uh, just to talk about your last caller, I want to credit my man Zeets for this. Uh, mixed disc route is more overrated than tacos. Why isn't Sasha Kleshin getting any love? No, I, I I agree that Sasha should probably get a look, 
But it seems as though Klinsman, once Klinsman decides that, I mean, Benny Failhopper's the guy. I mean, let's be honest yeah, exactly, about that. Exactly, Benny Failhopper's yeah. the guy that should step into that role if you lose Michael Bradley. And yet, Jurgen Klinsman seems to think that Benny Failhopper is a bag of crap. And I don't get it. But go ahead. Um, so, at Mexico, Costa Rica, that's the main thing I called about. Um, so I was talking with the missus yesterday. The winner gets my son. I think that's going to be the bet. <laughs> oh, is your, oh, is she Mexican? I didn't know. Yeah, yeah. Oh, oh. He's, he's, he's a Mexican, Costa Rican, born in the United States, <laughs> but I think the winner is going to get my son. Oh, man, that's that's tough. I mean, I, how old yeah. is he now? How old is he? Because I know he's playing. Uh, he's seven. He's seven. He's seven. Yeah, yeah. yeah. My, my kid's got no choice. you got to be a USA fan. He's seven, he's seven <laughs> as well. Um, That's rough, Eddie. I mean, that's rough. I mean, how, yeah. do, how do you feel? I'm nervous. I'm not going to lie. How do you feel about your boys right now? I mean... We were going to have to play Mexico anyway. I, I wanted to be on this side of the bracket to begin with. Um, I didn't want to be on the U.S. side only because I saw a lot of vulnerabilities in Mexico. They haven't beaten us in the last three games. I think that's something that needs to be pointed out. Um, in the 2-2 draw that we just played for the first 45 minutes, we we basically dominated Mexico, played them off the pitch. What I'm going to be curious about is what both managers who are feeling the pressure, what they're going to do tactically because I think Mexico – look better playing a four four two and Costa Rica look better playing um a four three three but I wonder if Costa Rica will play the five man back line and Mexico will play the four man back line which would be kind of ironic because it'll be both teams kind of flipping on their philosophies in, in the most important game of the year. So I think the build up to it, just watching tactically what the managers are gonna opt for, I think is going to be the most intriguing part. I think that the crowd in, in, in MetLife is going to be ridiculously pro-Mexican, which is sure. really going to help them out because I remember being there in 2011 uh, and they were just heckling Costa Rica and Honduras, but they were playing the game while they were waiting for their game against Guatemala. And this was like three hours before kickoff. So I can only imagine what it's going to be like on Sunday. Um, I mean, we, we were going to have to play them anyway, so I'm not too worried about it. Uh, it's just, I mean, neither of us really deserve to win and move on to the semifinals. It's, to be perfectly honest, the final right now, based on form, should be Jamaica against Trinidad and Tobago. Yeah, but that's not how tournaments work. And you know that. And there's always a chance. And Costa Rica could very well surprise and, and go all the way and win the damn thing. And, and I mean, surprise at this point, but I don't think anybody would be surprised that Costa Rica's got the quality to figure it out. No, I agree. I think, I think the winner of this game is probably going to end up making it to the final anyway. Uh, whether they can beat the U.S., and even the U.S. hasn't looked good. But I think Haiti looked the best at a group A, to be perfectly honest, watching this entire tournament. I think the Caribbean, in every single group, the Caribbean team has been the better um, of the group. It's just, you know, yeah, tournaments aren't going to work out that way. But I, I think I think the winner of this game will probably end up making a run to the final. It's just, it's just too much talent on both sides. Eddie in Brooklyn calling in, checking on, uh, checking on his Ticos. Appreciate the call, Eddie. You gotta move on. I gotta wrap this one up. Yeah. Good stuff, man. Right, man. All right. See you later. It goes Eddie in Brooklyn. It's good to talk to him as always. All right. We are done here on a Thursday. It's been an excellent show. Two fantastic guests. Tom Marshall, Seth Fertelny. Make sure if you missed it, you listen back to this one. All right. Go to backheel.com slash store. Buy yourself a mug. I got one of them right here. They're pretty. I got the logo on them. The t-shirts are somewhere. And then we have backheel.com slash store has t-shirts as well. And yeah, tacos are not overrated. What is wrong with you people? Tacos are properly rated in the fact that they are amazing. And I'll talk to you tomorrow. Later.